0: This is the Design Goggles podcast on B&B Radio. Checking out architecture and design is a pretty good way to keep track of how the world changes. Designers have a unique way of looking at cities, and Seattle is a city that's changing fast. More people are moving here every day, and understanding what's different and what's next has never been more important. So, put on your design goggles and join us in checking out the view. I'm Charles. I'm a designer here at Borden Vellum. I live in the Central District neighborhood and I've been a Seattleite for two years.
1: And I'm Rachel. I'm a designer here at Borden Vellum. I live in the old Ballard neighborhood and I grew up here in Seattle.
0: This week's show is titled Work to Live. Work cultures can be eclectic to say the least. And if you add in the quirks of the Pacific Northwest, it gets pretty interesting at the office. With all of the new tech companies popping up in Seattle, the work culture landscape has changed a lot these last few years. How are the traditional work cultures of downtown Seattle mixing with the tech intensity of South Lake Union? How have longer commute times affected where we work and how much? With this newer, denser work environment in the city, how do we manage to keep our priorities straight and still have fun? To help us answer that question and more, we are joined by Jeff Pelletier, founder of Borden Bellum, an architecture firm here on Capitol Hill and also our boss. Jeff, thanks so much for making time to sit and chat with us. You're welcome. So at the beginning of every show, we always ask, how long have you been in Seattle?
2: I feel like a local now. So I moved here in 2001. So 17 years.
0: When you first moved here, where did you live?
2: Lived up on Roosevelt at like 71st and Roosevelt, which I actually loved.
0: Couldn't have been developed like it is now when you first moved here. No,
2: no. But I did live in an apartment building and I was pretty excited because there was like an Italian restaurant next door and I could walk to something even though it was one thing. Oh, NSA, I could walk to the
0: Safeway. Did you go directly from there to Capitol Hill?
2: No. So lived in that apartment for about two years. And then we bought our first house, technically in Ravenna, 15 blocks away.
0: So how long have you lived in Capitol Hill specifically?
2: So I moved on Capitol Hill 2006. Yeah, it's been a long time. What's
0: it but like watching it change?
2: It's been surreal. When I first moved to Capitol Hill, I live on 15th, and I'd walk through Pike Pine to get to Broadway or something. And Pike Pine was kind of a wasteland actually. East of Broadway, there was like nothing there. I and mean, it was kind of sketchy. Trying to go to dinner, we'd always like rush out the door to get somewhere by 7.30. Because by eight o'clock, you just couldn't get dinner somewhere.
0: Or was it just too dangerous? What was the? Places
2: were either empty or they were just closed. Like it was way too late.
0: What are the, some of the other stark differences?
2: Obviously this the development that's, that's happened so much is hard to miss, certainly. But I think it's also just far more of a real neighborhood. I think when I first moved here, there felt like there was huge chunks of land that were just kind of empty. It had some old homes that were used by college students living together, but not much going on, it wasn't really connected. There were like pockets, some retail on Broadway, some restaurants, sort of an olive denny, but not really that much. And 15th, actually 15th hasn't changed all that much, was pretty sleepy.
0: Do you get nostalgic for how it was ever?
2: No, not (laughs) at all, actually. I love change. I think cities are built on change. I grew up in New England in this little town, which I don't want to disparage because it's actually a cool little city, but it's stuck in time. It hadn't really changed. And I think there's something to be said about a city that does change. So a city that stays static just kind of doesn't evolve, doesn't change, doesn't stay amazing. And even though the change that's happening now is crazy, it's exciting.
0: Were there adjustments you had to make when you first moved from the East Coast to the West Coast?
2: So I have a funny story. So I was living in New York City actually before Seattle, I hated living in New York City. I would come home. I would like cough up black stuff. I felt like everything was rotten in the grocery stores and I just missed green. Like I wanted a tree. I just never realized how much of a um, lover of trees I was until I lived in New York City. So when I lived in Seattle, I was so excited to have this sort of semi-suburban lifestyle. I wanted to get in a car and drive somewhere because in New York, even though everything was close by, I, I just felt trapped. At first, the first year, I was all excited to have this car, go to a grocery store, and put the groceries in my car. And I quickly realized that it was just a reaction to having lived in such an incredibly dense environment that was so stressful. But that I didn't actually like the whole car life either. That was not what I wanted. It was t- I kind of swung the pendulum too far. And so finding the sweet spot, which to me is Seattle, which has become a great city where now I can take the light rail places, or I can take the streetcar, or I can you know take a Lyft or an Uber somewhere and get places that not use my car, but still have trees nearby. It's pretty pretty awesome.
0: In New England, was it more car life? The architectural character, the neighborhood character, the similarities to what we have here, or is it very, very different?
2: It's sort of a hybrid. Seattle for me feels like a mix of suburban and urban. So certainly the downtown core on Capitol Hill are urban. That's what I think of as a city. But the fact that there are homes with yards in a city always felt so strange to me. Um, Single-family zoning in Seattle, of course, is a whole separate topic. But it is a suburban mentality in an urban setting. There are yards that you have to mow the lawn on. And certainly in New York City or Boston, you don't mow your lawn in those cities. You don't have a lawn. And so it's a nice mix to me of um, suburban and urban. And
0: it's funny, people are just starting to get used to maybe not having lawns for the first time here, it seems like. That's why I think it's interesting that you grew up in New England and lived in New York for a little bit. It's a little bit more dense, a little bit less yard, but there's still, the neighborhoods are still retaining their character. Maybe not Pike Pine as much. Pike Pine seems pretty different from what you described.
2: But I think Pike Pine, it wasn't a place I wanted to go. It wasn't dense enough. Cities need density to function, to have enough warm bodies to basically populate a restaurant. When I first moved here, I didn't like the fact that I couldn't go to dinner at eight o'clock. That was stupid. Tonight, I'll be grabbing dinner probably at nine o'clock and the bar will be full. And that'll be amazing. That's the fun parts of a city. But I still could walk home on a, a leafy street with trees and it feels a nice scale, even with apartments and sort of denser environments around me.
0: So when you started your career in New York, we all kind of know what work-life balance is like in New York. So <laughs> don't even need to have that conversation. When you got here year or two into your career what were your early jobs like culture-wise? And I guess there's kind of two parts to this because part of it is working as an architect in general and then working in Seattle as its own thing. So maybe for people who are listening who haven't just been architects their whole lives, you can pull those two things apart.
2: My first impression of a job here in Seattle compared to New York City was how drastically different everyone dressed. And I worked at a small firm and... There's like 12 of us. And I came to work with like skinny black dress pants and like a, a button down shirt and a tie. And they were like, do you have an interview <laughs> with another firm? And so I was like, oh, that doesn't work. And so each day I kept coming in with what I thought was more and more casual. And clearly it was so much more formal than they were used to. And I got to the point where I couldn't even wear slacks. I couldn't wear pants that were not jeans for fear that they were just going to like ostracize me for what I was wearing. Yeah,
0: I've i do not never seen a person in chinos. Really, ever. I see a suit once in a while, but even then, I'm always kind of shocked. I saw, I was just on Pike Pine the other day, walking by that Red Hook Brew Lab place, and there was just this guy. Everybody else were typical Seattleites, this one guy in a stark white shirt and a blue tie. And I felt bad, but I was like staring at him. So that's not a new phenomenon. No, it was no. kind of always like that here.
2: Yeah, I had to spend a long time, like, slowly dressing down, <laughs> dressing down. Almost, it was actually too much. Like, it's sort of, it actually became a mission a couple of years ago to actually, like, stop dressing like a Seattle slob.
0: <laughs> was it 9 to 5?
2: So, it was probably, like, 9 to 6. It was oh. definitely not an 8-hour day, but it was so much more low-key. And I was so shocked because I was used to working 80 hours a week. 80 hours a week was a normal week. That's what you did. It was unheard of to think of working 40 hours a week. That just simply wasn't what people did. Yeah. And so it took a while for me to get used to the fact that people had a 50-hour work week there.
0: So when you first moved here, it wasn't necessarily pre-tech, but pre-Amazon. At South Lake Union, I don't know my history that well. It wasn't happening yet, right? That was still what it was. So what was the complexion of the work culture like in Seattle? It was just did different Work districts have their own personality, or was it all pretty uniform?
2: I think it was pretty uniform. Um, the big tech employment base was really on the east side at the time. There weren't that many tech companies in Seattle proper. Seattle proper had a lot of banking. I mean, WAMU. Oh, yeah. And so that was certainly a you know more formal work environment. There were certainly like graphic designers and architecture firms downtown, and it felt like a good mix of kind of normal corporate culture, but a lot of the tech companies, which were far more formal, were on the east side.
0: Did downtown clear out at five or six?
2: You know, not entirely, actually. So downtown, i got to give Seattle credit, they actually managed to keep their downtown pretty vibrant. There was a couple big efforts pre-me and pre-01 that happened where they kept downtown going. And so downtown's never really had a big sort of decimation like other cities have had, we they've done a really good job of sort of keeping it alive. That said... It was definitely slowing down by like eight or 9 p.m.
0: It's funny, in doing my research for the show, it's impossible to talk about the work culture landscape in the city without talking about Amazon specifically. Because even the other tech companies in the city don't have the same reputation or the same, it's not the same lightning rod. Every time I bring up work culture in a conversation in general in Seattle, it just inevitably comes up. And it seems it's almost like an us-them thing, which I kind of I think is challenging because it sets it up to be in conflict, that there is this new different work culture and it's super intense and people work really hard. And that's bad. And that in the rest of the city, that's somehow special, which is a nine to five thing. But I wonder if it gives the wrong impression that somehow there is a bad work culture and a good work culture. Maybe there's just different work cultures and some things work for some industries and some people. And I wonder when you decided to branch off and start your own thing, what were you thinking in terms of work culture? You had the opportunity to create your own and you must have taken experiences from your career, but also see this thing happening by the lake.
2: So I had a funny start when I went off on my own. It was still in the recession. And I had been working somewhere previously where I'd been working part-time to some of the worst years of the recession. And so I would manage my time where I would work Monday, Tuesdays, 10-hour days. So I'd work 20 hours. And then the next week, I'd work Thursday, Friday, 10-hour days. So I'd take off Wednesday to Wednesday each week. Mm -hmm. And I'd go camping or hiking. And it felt just very relaxing and amazing. And I kind of took advantage of the time that I had off. So when I started the firm, I was very excited to have this flexible schedule. And I had this crazy vision that I was going to work in my attic. I was going to, like, design backyard cottages and sketch them and make some watercolors. And then I would, go, I would go skiing on Tuesdays and hiking on Wednesdays. And then I would work on the weekends and I'd have this amazing, I did like lifestyle. And that lasted for about a week before I realized <laughs> that I was getting really bored. And that I, I had one mode, which was pedal to the metal at all times. Right. And so for me, it wasn't so much about creating a culture of working nonstop, but it was about having the flexibility to work really hard when you did work and the framework of taking the time off when you wanted it, when you needed it. And so, even though that first year I didn't take off lots of Tuesdays and Wednesdays, I would take off like a week or two, which is unheard of for people starting a firm. Right. But I was like, I need to, I want to, and so that sort of um, baked-in flexibility of time was really important to me early on.
0: And so, how did that evolve into into this? I still like I've been I've I've been present for the last two years of it, but the early evolution still, even just from pictures, I can't picture how it started as this this thing where you're just like, I'm gonna live my best life and just <laughs> just hike and then just like, oh yeah, we'll just open a huge office and, and change how architects work.
2: I think there's really two pieces to it. I thought a lot about it over the years, like what really caused it. And so my mom had always been sick all growing up. So she was always really ill. And so I was always kind of taking care of myself. And so I had this very independent streak. I was very much aware of death growing up being a possibility that Time was ticking, and so even when I started this firm, I was really focused on use the time I have, take the risk. Worst case, this whole thing fails; I'll be a better architect for it. And if it fails, I'll go get another job. I'll be, it'll be okay. When I started this thing, I knew that I had to work really hard to get to do anything. I couldn't just let this thing sit. Mm-hmm. I wanted to work really hard and hustle, but I also needed to take advantage of the time I had. I mean, I was 33 when I started this place, and I wanted to travel and ski. I didn't want to waste my 30s you know, just building a firm. So I did both. Mm-hmm. So I made a really conscious effort to take time off. And so the sort of art of taking time off and treating myself to that was really, really important. The second piece was who I hired. So because I was 33, I knew enough to know that I was dangerous, but also that I needed to rely upon other people and that it couldn't just be about my ego doing this. Mm-hmm. And so the first employee, Ryan, who's still here, was super eager to like jump in and help. I mean, he was such a nice guy. And I kept thinking, like, I want to mentor this guy and train him, but he's a nice person. I don't want to be a bad guy to this guy. Like, you know, what can he teach me back? And it really created this culture of me realizing, like, I don't want to be the same as every other firm. There had to be a better way. Like, I had to give Ryan a better experience than my 80-hour work weeks early on. Like, that was not a path to happiness, mm-hmm. and so how do I make this guy want to give his all willingly, not at gunpoint?
0: A popular thing in the architecture industry is to name a firm Charles Federman Associates or Stephen Johnson Associates or uh, Jeff Pelletier and Partners or whatever. You sl- chose a slightly different path, but at the beginning you could have gone any way with it. How did you decide how to name the firm and how did that kind of kick off? the way the firm would be.
2: I had in my memory way back when a client who had kind of complained to me once that he really wished that his architect had advocated for him and that he didn't want it to be about that architect's one vision. He wanted the architect, even if he wasn't getting his way to fight for him as a client. And so to me, when I was thinking about what message was I trying to sell about what I was offering, if I put my name on it, which certainly has its virtues, a lot, a lot of strengths to that, would be confusing if we ever grew that what happens if Let's say Ryan, the first employee, Ryan came along with just my vision and I was making Ryan do it. And so having the freedom to have a different name that wasn't just, this is Jeff Pelletier's show and these are my supporting actors, um, allowed us the freedom to grow and be flexible and to be our client's advocate versus just an advocate for me. I don't think I knew all that when I started it. The running jokes, I went to like the hipster online generator and found a design firm name. <laughs> um, <laughs> With an ampersand in there for fun. The name actually is one of the things I'm most proud of, actually. It really kind of resonates with who I think we are. You know, it's approachable, it's fun, and it's not about me.
0: When I have conversations with people at other architecture firms about border and vellum, a lot of the time they bring up our size as a small firm as being, well, that's only possible because you are the size you are. And ironically, we do some similar things that tech companies do, being on the edge of work culture experimentation. And those are huge companies. But why do you think it is that architects specifically lock on to, oh, well, you can't do that at a big firm because you guys are small. Of course, that works. Well,
2: it's funny. I think it was you, Rachel, actually, who a while ago mentioned the fact that we function more like a tech company than an architecture company.
1: We function more like a startup. Basically, we are a startup architecture firm. And we are small as all startups start. We just have been hustling this whole time. You can't have an elaborate structure that says you must do this because this is your bubble of of what you need to accomplish and get done because there's so much to do and everybody has to figure it out and make sure that all of our bases are covered. And I think if you started a firm and said, nope, I am only going to deal with you know, finding new clients and I am not going to ever take out the trash, then could have never become what it's become to this point. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to allow everybody to wear all of the hats that need to be worn at different times. And so it's very much a startup in that sense of we're going to build something any way that we can. We're building things. We are literally changing environments, yes, but we're also trying to change the culture of the design industry because it doesn't have to be that architecture firms Are this old school way where everybody is in their little box. We are showing that it doesn't have to be that way.
2: I think early on, I realized that in order for me to have the freedom of my free time to be able to, you know, take a vacation or something that I couldn't micromanage everything and that the real path forward was to train Ryan initially and then Matt and then new people into the way I did things and like let them do it and let them do it differently than I would. So I think it was really important to me that I wanted to keep doing what I was doing, but I wanted them to take the company in a different way. And so we kept evolving. Mm-hmm. And I think now we're so much a company of diverse opinions and diverse skill sets, all feeling empowered to do things on their own, that it's actually been the biggest challenge has been actually um, holding back growth mm-hmm. because we all want to do so much. We're all excited. But it's like I've always said anyone here who works here should get the skills to run a design firm, whether it's marketing or client relations, or production, or uh, involvement during construction, should have all the baseline skills. And, and they should be able to go off and start their own amazing firm that I would happily welcome, and you know, people could do that if they want to. But if they didn't, they could stay here and help make this firm whatever they want it to be. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of much more of a mentality of a group versus a few individuals at the top. I think has helped us sort of be different.
0: Is it harder as a business owner to do it different all the time? Oh, yeah, (laughs) it is.
2: There are times when I know what the easy decision is and I'll like look down at my notes and I'll just sigh like, oh, this is the hard way, but this is the better way. The long term payoff is going to be better. It may take more investment now, more work now to train people or do whatever it is. And the reality is like we're a relatively young firm in terms of the makeup of our population. Um, and we're all punching well above our weight class. I think that's the right word. I'm not really a sports analogy person. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're punching and there's weight and something happened. <laughs> and I think it's good.
0: People talk about Google and Facebook as these tech companies that give out all these crazy benefits. and But it seems to almost be making up for the intensity that they require, especially when I was reading about you know the amazon controversy when it somehow broke nationally that amazon was a really intense place to work they were offering up google and facebook as alternatives look at these other big tech companies that give their employees all these things and still want that intensity but then everybody was viewing that as okay and what I think is interesting and different that maybe Board and Bellum does than 10 companies is that we don't require you to destroy your life over the work that you're doing to earn enjoying your life. And in a way, it seems like those two things might cancel themselves out. How did you think about, as you grew the company, also making it fun? I wonder if it's easier for a couple people in Pioneer Square to just go out for drinks after work. But the bigger the group got... Having fun took more work than just letting it happen.
2: I wanna first speak to the whole benefits thing. There's a theory that just give your employees more benefits. They will be happy. It's only true to a point. I think you know there certainly are golden handcuffs that exist. At some point, you can be paid so much money and it just doesn't matter. If your job is that miserable, any amount of money or benefit is just not gonna make you happy. So benefits to me are both a band-aid, like they kind of solve a problem temporarily, but they also need to be a certain level to sort of be off your radar. So if you're working somewhere, and you don't, don't have enough vacation time or you're you know you're afraid to take time off to go take care of a new kid. That's a distraction. That doesn't actually help you. You want to basically not think of those benefits. You want to have that sort of safety net behind you in terms of time off and all that kind of stuff. And that's my goal is like, let's give a great benefit package that you just don't have to worry about. Now, some tech companies will have crazy benefits that are just, you know, in-house sushi on Wednesday, all the kind of crazy stuff that the cost-benefit ratio just doesn't make sense. We're but can, still... we,
0: but can we get into our sushi? <laughs> yes, every day. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> um, that would actually be really, I'm really dangerous. Just doing the show so I could just put your feet to the fire on sushi and extra massages. And...
2: <laughs> I'd be all for that actually.
0: <laughs> we should just open a pop-up sushi shop.
2: That's a great idea. I would do it. I've been talking about having that front closet turned into a little pop-up retail closet spot. A little bandana. Yeah, Pop-ups. just roll up the You should do it. Aside from the constant sushi, benefits don't solve fundamental problems. If people don't feel empowered Mm -hmm. or in love with their job, at some point, they just don't care how many massages they get or what kind of health care or time off. It just doesn't matter.
0: I read somewhere benefits prevent dissatisfaction and that the benefits can be as crazy as you want, but literally that's the ceiling. Yeah. Yeah. And I've seen
2: friends of mine or colleagues who've had tech jobs who all they'll talk about is how much money they're making. And I'm like, but you look miserable. You look at- I mean, certainly there's a whole saying, you know, like money doesn't make happiness. And I think it's probably said by someone who's really rich because enough benefits in a sort of a safety net certainly can provide some happiness, but it's not going to solve problems. So finding that sweet spot between benefits that make sense for your employees without breaking the bank, make a lot of sense. So in terms of working at having a fun culture as we've grown the big piece for me was having a spot where i felt like i could be myself i used to be professional jeff and then at home jeff and i blurred the two every now and then but i really felt like the key to success was having that clear distinction so i had to go to work and i had to like turn on a switch And I was in my professional mode. And maybe because I started this in a recession and I didn't have much work or whatnot, I was just always relaxed and casual. And I started a firm where that felt like the culture. I wanted people to bring themselves to the firm. And so I've always modeled that behavior. And I think I should try to set the tone of, no, come and be yourself. Like, I want this to feel like, yes, it is a job and we have work to do. But it should also be a spot you can come and feel comfortable and relaxed. And I, the feedback I get constantly from clients or people walking through the office is how much laughing there is. People bring it up all the time. Like, is there a party going on? Why are you laughing so <laughs> yeah, it's much? it's Tuesday. It's Tuesday. You shouldn't be this happy. <laughs> But someone's always cracking a joke and it's fun. And so I think it, it sets the tone like, oh, this is this, this is the safe space where I can laugh and actually make a joke and be myself. And it's just kind of evolved naturally.
0: It's funny. I was doing research. There's so many videos all about culture beats strategy and you're going to make so much more money. And sometimes you have couched it in those terms, specifically where you're talking to firm owners. But I wonder why it is in architecture specifically, people are so... Initially resistant to the idea that work can be fun and not intense and still profitable. And I don't know. There just seems, specifically in architecture, maybe I'm also coloring this with my own experience.
2: I think there's a bad history of architects 150 years ago who were basically artists. Architects were not really a commodity, they were these artists, craftsmen who would come in, these master builders of sorts, who'd come in and design these amazing buildings. And They had the picture in their mind of what they were, and so they had to dictate to draft people, and and it became grueling, and they didn't have the technological tools to put a product into Revit and produce drawings. It had to be all drawn by hand and precise, and mistakes couldn't happen. And so it created this culture of crazy long hours and one sort of ego at the top, and everyone else was a supporting cast. But things have changed, but I think a lot of firms haven't because they're still operating in a version of the same old way where it's all about supporting the people at the top, and only they can bring in work, and only they can design, and only they can do X, Y, and Z. And so breaking free of that, and for me to say, I have no interest in that. I love design. I want us to do the most amazing job we can and push that so hard. But there's no reason why that amazing idea has to come from me. That can come from someone else in the team with a different perspective. And if the client gets that design, it doesn't matter who it comes from. It matters that they get the best design that blows them away.
1: Not to make it really dark, but you have to break the cycle of abuse. It's, you know, so typically if a kid is abused, they go grow up to abuse other people. And, and in a less terrible way. work culture is like that. If, if you came up through a culture that you just, you had to battle through and find your way to success through a lot of abusive work environments, it's very hard to step back and say, I am not going to do that to the people that come up. I went through it. It's a rite of passage that everyone else must go through it. And you see that in design school too.
2: It's true that I think overworking is a drug that the whole design industry is addicted to. I remember going out of school and just hearing actually even recently you know, 20 years later, that people would take internships, for full-time jobs at high profile firms and not get paid. And that was a privilege. And I kept thinking like, what a screwed up relationship because I would say, so as a owner of a firm, I grew grew my reputation. We did amazing projects and they were published nationally and internationally. Everyone knew about us that hopefully then I, in theory, could charge enough that I could, I don't know, pay my employees. Just a novel idea I had. And so how has this become an acceptable practice where not paying interns is, is okay, that somehow that, well, I did it so they should have to too is really acceptable. And I think that a lot of these firms have chased down fees because they've made enough money because people are on salary and they pay them equivalent of a you know 40-hour work week salary, but then they work them 80 hours a week. So they're being paid you know, equivalent hourly rate, that's ridiculous, but they're billing by the hour. It is just fundamentally unfair. And so the fees get lower and lower and lower, and it's a race to the bottom, and it doesn't make any sense. And so when I mentioned earlier that we had to do things the hard way, the easy way was to compete on fee, to just be cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And I had a really good friend of mine, Hillel Cooperman, who's awesome and amazing, and he once told me that his advice was never the cheapest, that explain to the clients your value that we think we are worth a certain amount and that we understand if you know if that's not in your budget we totally understand we get it we, you know we do things ourselves sometimes but that we think we're worth the value but if that's not in your budget we understand and that's been our sort of approach we never want to be the priciest but i never want to be the cheapest mm-hmm. i want to make enough money that we can treat our employees really well because happy employees make happy clients. I feel like that should be a ringtone at some point. I say it so much.
0: <laughs> so switching gears a little bit, you said something once, which I found really fascinating, and I know this standpoint has evolved a little bit, but you had wondered at one point if Bored and Vellum could exist in another city. Why do you think Bored and Vellum started in Seattle, other than the fact that you moved here? Like, what, what do you, what is it about Seattle that was a fertile proving ground for Seattle? And does the complexion of a city affect the success of cutting edge work culture?
2: I think a city completely affects work life culture. Absolutely. Born in Vellum has Seattle in its DNA. It's our second employee, basically. So when I moved to Seattle, I was so shocked because having lived in New England and having lived in New York City, it felt like I was a tiny voice in an ocean. And I felt like I couldn't make any change. I couldn't have any impact. I was going along for the ride. When I came to Seattle, it's still a big city. It took a while for me to kind of find my bearing and make my friends and find my footing professionally. But then I found out that actually you could just get involved here. You could join a group and they would welcome your contribution. And that the city was still forming. It was still changing I mean, Seattle has never really been static, which I think is funny because everyone's always saying, I don't want things to change. It's like they've only ever changed. The city is like 150 years old. I was able to jump in and make an impact and do things my own way. And so there's always been a culture in Seattle, I think, of trying something new, of creating, and being forward thinking, of trying to innovate. And so what we've done here is fit into that. And I think in thinking like a startup and in thinking like we can change the world, we've met clients who completely think that same way in their job or their life. And so they connect with what we're trying to do here. They understand it. We don't feel like the same old design firm has been around for a while. We f- we think and act like they do. And that's part of the fun thing about being in Seattle. When I started the firm in 2011, of course, everyone thought I was crazy because it was the recession. Architects were decimated. In theory, we actually, I think the country was out of the recession, but architects didn't know it by any means. I had kept my job at a great company. And everyone's like, why are you leaving a stable job? You're insane. And, you know, I did it for my own personal reasons, but it was, timing-wise, it was perfect because the first year or two, I was able to kind of, like, make my mistakes, move ahead, figure some things out, and then we had to build a foundation where we actually could grow along with the economy. So, timing-wise, it worked out, and just the makeup of Seattle, it's just perfect. This is such a city that rewards innovation and penalizes complacency.
0: want to talk a little bit about the authenticity paradox, which is one of my favorite things to talk about when it comes to work culture. In fact, we were watching a video just before that was like your first day at big tech startup company. And it was very clearly meant to show off about how young and how luxurious this job was. And it was all very choreographed. And we have a great culture here. Do you ever wonder or worry that Putting it so front and center takes over what we do or appears as a false narrative. You can see when you watch that video, it's a false narrative. And so many companies are like, we're trying so hard to be different now. It's like, may as well be their motto. Managing that line must be challenging.
2: For me, that line between authentic and manufactured is probably the most important line to watch because I love coming to work. I walk to work. I get excited to see people here. It feels fun. It never feels like, I'm putting on like a, a burden to come into this office. It feels even on the worst days where you're just like, oh, I don't want to go to that meeting or I have this to get done. How am I going to get it all done? I know that I have the, my back covered by all these amazing coworkers and it feels fun. So I don't want that to go away. And I think part of what makes it fun for me is I don't have to put on that professional Jeff hat anymore. I'm me. Right. And I communicate in ways with clients now that I probably never would have in the past and I'm very conscious of making sure I keep that because second one day I come in and I'm like in professional Jeff mode and I can't laugh in a meeting, can't make a joke, something's wrong. And so I'm always aware of that and making sure I'm modeling the right behavior. And other people feel safe to do the same. And it doesn't mean being you know, unprofessional. I mean, we're completely professional in terms of how we get our jobs done, but it means doing it in a way that feels authentic. Like this is just us and we're not right for everyone. We're not, we're not something for everyone. Hopefully we're, you know, everything to some people but I'd rather that than us be someone we're not trying to chase after someone who wants something that we don't have.
0: It was just chatting with an old coworker about taking on projects that they probably shouldn't, but, oh, but we're going to make all this money on this project. And I told them up front, all right, well, if you want to do this crazy thing and I'm going to make all my people work really, really crazy extra hours, I'm going to charge you for it. And then at the end, and he's like, and then I gave everybody bonuses afterwards. So it was okay. And I was like, Really? Is that how you see it? It seems like everybody thinks that if they just do this one thing, everybody would be happy. I wonder you just can't fake actually caring. <laughs> like you can pretend to care all you want, but I think people are savvy enough to tell the difference. You know, there's a story
2: that I tell about the skills needed for business development or marketing. And previously, in my previous life, basically, someone that mentioned to me that we think like, you have great marketing skills. And I was like, what does that mean? What, what, you know, is there a class I need to take? I don't, what are these skills you think I have? I have no idea. And it occurred to me when I was off my own that, oh, business development and marketing is just being yourself and then hoping people connect with you and not selling yourself, not being that sort of schmarmy salesman. And if people know what you do, they know that you're happy and they're looking for someone to hire you, then... I'll hire you. It was pretty straightforward. And so I think that's been a key thing for me, being authentic and realizing that you just don't get anywhere by that sort of false narrative.
0: If somebody said, oh, Jeff Pelletier, you've created this great work culture. Here's a bunch of money, fix Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> what what advice would you give a company that recognizes going in the wrong direction?
2: That's a great question. How much money are we talking about? here? <laughs> You know, my advice for any company actually, and I've talked to other business owners about this because people sometimes feel trapped. And people will get on the wrong path, not because they're bad people or because they, you know, they wanna do bad things, treat people poorly, but that's because it's the way the whole world operates. I could have very much ended up on that path myself had certain circumstances not happened. So no one should feel like I'm a bad person because I've I've run this company, company that's not amazing, whatever it is. Like it happens. So my advice is to gather your people and set some goals and first make sure you can communicate openly and freely and make sure it's a safe space to share those goals and those goals could be disruptive it could be i hate the way we operate i'm afraid to say that but i hate the way we operate and i love if we could do xyz and have a form set the goals and then make a a realistic plan that assess what you can and cannot do and do reach certainly but make a goal. It might be five or seven years for a lot of firms. If you're pretty far down one path, it might take five or seven years to change it, but make goals that are one or two years and then break those down to six month goals, three month goals, one month goals. And just make a plan. It sounds simple, but just start taking a step, one step at a time. And you can't make progress without doing that. And then reward yourself. We do this all the time. We set every year a plan for our company. It's big and lofty. And if you read it, you think, oh, we're not going to get all this stuff done. But then when you break it down by month by month and you have metrics, which we look at monthly, we're like, oh, wow, we're getting stuff done. And you feel better. And it feels like, "Okay, we are on this path, even though it's a long ways away, we're still making progress. And I think that's the biggest thing is anywhere I've ever worked, even here, if I don't feel like progress is being made, if I feel like we're stuck in the same spot, I'm just not happy. And I think that's probably true for a lot of people.
1: Charles, you mentioned if some boss overworks his employees and then says, oh, well, thank you for your service. Here's a bonus in retrospect. But I think a lot of of what we do here that we're trying to create and that can be abstracted to a lot of other companies, it's trickier to do it when you are already a giant company and to look at it and try to delve into how you can change some things. But I think the, the real kernel of it is that There is a very distinct difference between the people in positions of power bestowing upon the employees gifts and bounties of like, oh, well, here I bestow upon you all these amazing benefits and you will now go forth and be happy. What you really need to do is build that culture from within. You have to create that culture organically and encompassing everybody that is part of the company. Those benefits that we have come from a real place. It's not that Jeff just decided one day that it's going to be best for everybody if we have this one particular benefit. There's a lot to be gained by giving ownership of those ideas back to the people who are actually going to be experiencing them.
0: Something I do want you to get on the record, does Board and Vellum make money?
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that really a question? Yeah,
0: that's really a question. And do people at Bored and Vellum do work?
2: That's amazing. I can't believe it's a question. Absolutely.
0: I can't tell you how many times I've had talks with people at other firms and they say, do you guys do any work? They're astounded because they—they they, I think they do believe we're happy and they do believe that we write all these blog posts and we're generally interested and active. But for some firms, there is a, they're like, well, they can't be making money. They can't be a profitable business. That's impossible. Like it's a, it's a force field in their brain.
1: That's a projection of, of how we present our culture versus people misunderstanding what that means. It's true. We make an effort to demonstrate that we have this great culture and that we're all happy. And I think it's easy if you have never experienced it firsthand. I mean, imagine if you if you worked in a place that was just horrible and the only thing that makes you happy is to not be at work, then it it makes sense that you would assume, well, if these people are happy, they must not be working. And that's really sad that that is the way a great number of people experience their work life is that they're unhappy when they're at work and they're happy when they leave. Yeah, 40 hours a week is doable as long as you do a good job at your 40 hours. Like You can get so much stuff done if you're inherently already happy and not just sitting depressed at your desk because you hate being there. If you're happy and healthy and having a good time and the people around you are laughing, you'd be amazed on how much you get done.
2: People here hustle. Like I have never seen people here work so hard in 40 hours a week. And I think if people want to go home, they know they can go home. They know that they don't have to stay here for 60 hours because they want to be seen in the office. I want to get back to the whole, do we make money thing? Because that just blew my mind open. (laughs) Um, I have heard some things in the past are wondering that, like, but you offer these benefits. How is this possible? Like yep. you do really high-end residential. And I was like, we don't do high-end residential primarily. Like we do normal market rate remodels. Yes. <laughs> I was just working on a powder room project actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think for the record straight, when I started the company, I took 10 grand out of our savings. We had no debt. We've never had to borrow money beyond that. I spent 10 grand. Um, we are profitable. There's no secret benefactor. Who's the, um, Charlie? No, who's the guy from Wonder Woman? Not Wonder Woman. Charlie's Angels. Charlie's Angels. I'm not. There's no Charlie here. There's Charles. Thank <laughs> there's you for hosting. There's
0: only a Charles. That's in the company <laughs> values. One Charles.
2: Exactly. And so, yeah, like we're a business. And I think part of it is um, how we make money is we talk really carefully about what our budget is. And everyone here knows how we make money and how they are accountable. So a lot of work happens here. We hustle. But the payoff is people get ownership in what they want to do. And they do great work. I know it's scary to some employees here. Especially new employees are always nervous. Like they've been given too much information. They feel like they shouldn't have seen this. It's like they've walked into a bad room and they've seen some bad things and they don't know what to do about it. (laughs) And I'm like, it's just money. That
0: also happens.
2: (laughs) That's also our secret sauce here. Um, And so people don't know and they feel really scared. And our thing is like, it's just transparent. Like we, some teams are going to have bad weeks or good weeks or whatnot and it doesn't really matter we're we're a team we function as a team but to do that you have to know all the information and so i'm always been i've always been open book and it takes a while to get used to because it's a lot of transparency and it's a lot of like business knowledge you have to kind of figure out
0: what's been the biggest challenge in doing it differently what's the one thing where you're like man if i just did this like every other firm did life would be so much easier
2: I would have so much more free time. (laughs) I mean, I think about, um, so our budget process, for instance, which you guys all know about, is every year we ask everyone, what's your dream project? What do you want to do? What's, you know, what's something you're passionate about? And it can't just be, you know, I'd like better coffee in, in the kitchen, which that's certainly okay.
0: And then yeah, it can't I, be. I would also like better BetterCop.
2: Exactly. And no more sushi, Charles. Stop. God damn stop it. with a sushi request.
0: It's a one of the other thing. God.
2: <laughs> and so everyone submits their request. And then I have this massive spreadsheet. Actually, I have like four spreadsheets that I built myself and they're huge. And I plug in all the numbers of what the cost for those requests are, what the loss of revenue is to convert those hours from billable to non-billable. Um, because so we don't we don't ask for people to spend more than 40. And so it's, if you want to do something that's 10 hours a week, those 10 hours would come out of your 40 hours of work billable. And then we plug it all into a spreadsheet and we look, okay, can we make, make money? And usually all the requests come in and we're like, that's a little too close. You know, we actually do, we actually should make some money. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we talk about it as a group. We talk about what's in, what's out, what makes sense. And there's a giant printout on the, on the wall and we all can walk by it for weeks and look at it and mark it up and comment on it. And that's, it's a lot of work. It'd be so much easier for me to just, not take your request to be like I know better, or maybe it's three of us, and three of us know better. We're gonna pick our direction because we've we're the big minds here at Board and and we're gonna go off and decide what we should all do. Well, there could be someone who is who's a year out of school, who has this brilliant idea, and yeah, maybe lacking in technical knowledge, may not be able to draw a permit set correctly, but they may have a brilliant idea that could be lost somewhere else. And so maybe we can take that kernel of an idea, we can help shape it, we can move it, and we can plug it into our budget and make some real progress. And so that just takes a lot of time, but that process is so
1: valuable. It is unfortunate that in a profession that values mentorship so greatly that we forget that mentorship is a two-way street. And I think that it's really important to realize that the people that have been around for a long time and they have all their great ways and they have all of this fantastic knowledge to bestow upon these young new people fresh out of school, that it's really the best mentorship happens when it's coming from both directions. I think the best companies are built is that there is an, a mutual understanding between the young voices and the people that have been around the block and that they can come together and say, yeah, Captain Planet reference, I guess, here, <laughs> with our powers combined, we're going <laughs> to... <laughs> That's where the strength comes in, really, is that you've got to be uh, respectful and, and incorporate the voices of people that don't have any experience in maybe the business of architecture or the business of any company, really.
2: That's such a great point. Because so I think that one of the things that happens in the design industry is that you come out of school and you're eager and you're just beaten down for years. And my self-respect was so low for so many years Thinking I wasn't a good enough designer. I wasn't, you know, in one more year, I might know enough. You know, you always felt like there's around the corner was a knowledge you didn't quite have. And you never quite got there. Now, there's something good about that, which is like, on one hand, you want to always be making yourself better and learning more, which I think architects and designers have in spades. We're always trying to learn more, and that's fantastic. But it doesn't need to coexist with the feeling that you're never good enough, that your ideas are not good enough. And so I think that you can have someone coming from out of school who may question, why do we do things this way? Or what about this? Instead of just beating them down and be like, well, our process is this, this is the way you'll do things. This is the way I, as lead architect, will tell you to do things. To be like, oh, interesting, let's explore that. And you know, hey, that actually doesn't work practically because there's maybe a legal reason why we can't do that. But let's take the spirit of that and let's talk about it and let's find some good kernel of information out of that. Let's make what we do better. And I think that's a way of still mentoring people but empowering them and bettering the company you work for.
0: Was there ever an experiment you tried and you were like, oh, my God, that was a huge mistake?
1: Well, there's this podcast. Yeah, Yeah, what a
2: dumpster fire. (laughs) Well, you know, in terms of, like, bad ideas, there was the sushi buffet we canceled just before you joined. Um, That was the worst.
1: (laughs) Too much liability.
2: Um, I'm going to quote Ryan, again, the first employee. Um, I feel like he's like a disciple now, mm-hmm. and he always comments that we're like a group of ants here, at Board of them. We're scattered, we're scattered, and we start to coalesce and start to form a line. And then I come along and look at the line and I just like stick my finger right through it and, and smudge a line, and everyone scatters again. I really love change. I think that unless things are working perfectly, like th- blow it up, throw it away, and then when it works, keep it, lock it down. But even you know after, say we have something that's working for five years. Five years, things may change. Technology may change. Culture may change. Whatever it is, be open to changing anything. So in terms of a mentality for the firm, it can be exhausting that just when you think something is is policy here, it explodes. And we've had everything from like accounting software, which is sort of the, everyone talked about the story. Everyone winces like, oh, that was the worst software in the world. We had spent lots of money on this crazy accounting software that was going to solve all of our problems and in theory can do everything we wanted to do. I kind of read some, you know business books and that seemed like what a firm of our size should do. We should invest in this old school data rich software that was going to have all the information we wanted. We started going through training and I was like this training seems kind of weird. This is a weird software. And it was graphically a disaster on the screen, but it had the data and I thought okay, we can we can overcome these obstacles. We rolled it out after like 9 months of internal training. And within like a week I was like this is a disaster. Because the reality is no matter how much data a software can have or how much capability it can have, if you don't want to use it, you won't. And no one wanted to use the software. It was just, every time you, you go to enter your timesheets, remember it would default to like 1967. I always joke that you would like log on and would like yeah. have like a screen that would say like the world's first software. I made the call. I remember almost throwing up. What are we doing? We spent so much money on this thing, so much time, and it's not working. And it's what... But this is a software that big, this is what big firms should use. And I realized like, you know, this is not us. We're not a big firm. We're going to use a web savvy, friendly software and we're going to make it work for us. And so we did that and had something custom built, deal with the fact that it wouldn't generate invoices. And it was the hard path. But in the end, it was the better choice. I find that it's always the thing that seems to be the advice everyone gives me. If everyone's giving the same advice and I actually take it, I always regret it. So I wanted to talk about growth because I do believe that change is a constant and that change is good and that growth certainly is really key. Now, one of my favorite books, of course, is Small Giants, where firms don't necessarily grow size-wise or revenue-wise. But I think, actually, it's made me rethink what growth means because growth doesn't have to mean revenue or employee size or things like that. Growth can be professional growth in terms of what you do and evolve. I think we tend as architects and designers to want to be around people who want to push themselves and do more. And even if we stayed the exact same size for eternity, um, I think we would still as a company keep growing because we would keep changing what we're doing, keep evolving and trying new things. And that to me is what makes a company so innovative and fun is, you know, keep trying stuff. It's part of the whole adaptability thing and flexibility of just throw things away. You've, you've done that. Let's try something new. Um, that's why. Really, I'm so proud of what we've done here because people here are really adaptable and they're used to constant change. I mean, the joke, of course, is that, you know, two is a born of vellum is like 20 anywhere else.
1: There's no value in being adaptable if you aren't learning how to adapt to the next best thing based on what you experienced in the, the thing that came before. So it's not like, oh, this isn't working. Let's just roll the dice and see what this next option might be. No, you're building upon every experience that you get from the past things. It's, and you could probably tie that into the design process in architecture too, that you, it's not that we explore some idea for your kitchen remodel. And we're like, oh, nope, that's not working. Throw it away. No, everything is an iteration upon the thing that came before. Even if you quite literally come to a dead end, that it, the dead end doesn't cease to exist. You explored it. And then you learned from that to go a different direction and you're always informed by what came before.
2: It's funny, early on when I hired Robert in our office, he was concerned, how do I go from a big firm that has all these resources to a small firm? At the time, we didn't have giant resources. And I was like, but Robert, we can make them, trust me. And I think what's worked so well, and he did, thankfully, he still does, the poor sucker. And (laughs) what's so great is that when you build that knowledge, and when you create a great culture, where people feel empowered. Your, tu- your turnover is like non-existent. Mm-hmm. And so we don't have to keep training people with, with the same skill set. We have them here. Our turnover basically doesn't exist here. We still have that knowledge base here. And it's huge. We're not having to rebuild it constantly. And not having that sort of exhausting effort to weigh, weigh on top of us is so nice.
0: So sometimes at the end of shows, I ask people what their dream project would be. But for you, I kind of want to change the question a little bit. Instead of like, oh, what's the next thing you want to do? What's your dream for Board and Vellum? You're die happy. That's what happened with Board and Vellum.
2: I hope that we can create a new recipe for how design firms can do what they do, whether it's through service, whether it's through how we treat employees, whatever it is, but something new that change the equation that exists out there. I see this as almost like a, a framework where really talented people can plug in and then plug out. And that we're like a constellation of amazing stars that exist that are going to do amazing, amazing work. I don't want this to be the Jeff Pelletier show. Um, this is the Borden Bellum team. And each one of us is a rock star in our own right. And I think that I'm excited to meet more people who want to sort of get involved with what we do and just change the discussion. Make this fun. This is an exciting fun challenge we get, we're get given to design and solve problems. Um, and it's so much fun and it shouldn't be miserable and we shouldn't beat down people in the process to do so. So I hope that we can, in 30 years' time, look back and be like, wow, we really did what we said we're going to do. We, we changed the game. That'd be worth it for me.
0: Well, thank you very much for making the time to sit with us. I'm glad I could be here. And uh, thank you for listening. Our next night school event will be right around the corner. So keep a lookout on our social media for that. It'll be held here at Board and Vellum on 15th Avenue in Capitol Hill. Check us out on Instagram and Twitter or on the blog at Bordenbellum.com. There's always super cool stuff being posted there. And as always, please stop by anytime to chat with us. We would love to have you. Thank you again. And we will see you all in a few weeks.